0: Good morning, church. Welcome to Christmas Sunday here at MCBC. Welcome to those who are joining us online. It's finally here, isn't it? After weeks of anticipation and excitement and preparation, it's finally here. As a boy, the most difficult thing about Christmas for me was always the waiting. We would start the countdown back around the first week of October. So we had 12 weeks, and I would... I would rally my younger brother and sister to the cause, and we, we'd be marking off days on our calendar, and it felt like the closer we got, the longer the days were. Now, the beginning of October, as the, as the intro to the season, that wasn't an accident. In the 1970s, the beginning of October coincided with the arrival in our mailbox of that great brick of a treasure every year, the Sears christmas wish book that 's the this was the internet this is the world wide Web before there was the world wide Web and as you leaf through its six hundred pages, you could imagine we thought every possible thing on god 's earth You could buy slippers, you could buy a washing machine, you could buy a guitar, or in one thousand nine hundred and seventy seven you could buy the first Kenner release of the Star Wars action figures. In fact, you couldn't quite buy them. You could buy a certificate that you turned in after Christmas, and you got the toys. What a disappointment to all those kids who opened up a piece of paper on Christmas morning. (laughs) As Christmas arrived, time slowed down. that's the way it is when you're waiting for good things, isn't it? Whatever the good thing is, you can't wait for it to get here. A A wedding the birth of a child, the day you get your driver's license. It's, it's one of the things that makes Christmas such a delight. And the whole world wants to get in on the action. Whether or not they know about what the action is they're getting in on, we want to echo and honor and reflect the good gift that God gave in the massive juggernaut that has become the gift-giving enterprise at Christmas. But I get it. I get the desire and the delight that is on the hearts of people as they as they wrap and prepare and thoughtfully offer something to someone else that they love. Is it so hard to imagine that that was God's great motive as well? After waiting for so long, Christmas finally comes. And I use the word finally by choice because this is a day, Christmas is a day that the world had been waiting for for centuries. In fact, if you were to peel back the, the curtains of, of history, you'd realize that that moment, Bethlehem, the birth of Jesus, had been talked about from the very beginning of human history. From that very moment when the world first started to experience what a mess human beings could make of it. In the church, we call that sin. But don't get hung up on the religious language. It's just a way of saying our lives the way we interact with each other, the way that we relate to God and God's good earth, they are less than ideal. Nobody has journeyed through life unscathed. We all bear the wounds of our own mistakes and the hurts that have been caused to us. That's sin. Anything that disrupts the flow of God's good wishes for his people. That's sin. Anything that that, that blocks up a relationship with God and with each other, that's sin. From the moment that sin entered the world, God spoke a promise that he was going to intervene again. And he set in motion a plan that would would bring things right. Let me show it to you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me in Genesis chapter 3, to verse 15. If you don't have your Bibles, find somebody around you who looks like that's the kind of person who might have a Bible, you know, and just and lean into them. Or if your neighbor is playing heyday, uh, tell them to look up you version and uh, let's have a look. Genesis 3.15, here's the context. Adam and Eve, beautiful, garden, paradise, delight. And, and the most delightful thing about the garden is God's not remote. He's there. He's, he's up close and personal, and they're enjoying the joy of spending their days in unbroken solidarity with their creator. And then it goes, it goes all wrong, a, a result of, of human choice. And we all know that human choice can be the breeding ground for all kinds of evil. And so it all goes wrong. And Adam and Eve are there, and, and God is speaking to his great adversary, the tempter, Satan, and this is what he says, Genesis 3.15. He says, Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head. Let's take a look at at that one verse, That, that, that idea, that phrase, between her offspring and yours. Literally the phrase, the seed of a woman. Now, there's something wrong about that phrase, right? The seed of a woman. That's not normally how we talk about it. We talk about the seed of a man and a woman together, or the seed of man carried by a woman was kind of the, the, the understanding for much of history. But no, this is the seed of a woman. What woman do we know of who gave birth in a way that did not involve the biology of a male father? This is mother of Jesus. This is Mary. So the descendant of this woman, Jesus, there will be enmity between Jesus and God's great adversary. And then comes the promise, and he shall crush your head. Victory over darkness, over death, over evil. And this is the promise. And it came from as far back as the beginning of the story of how the world started to go wrong. The promise was given. The fact is, when when sin entered the world, peace left it. And we've been struggling to find our way back ever since. And when we do it, Absent of God, is it any wonder that we've never been able to get there? Isaiah 53.6 talks about the situation this way. It says, we all, like sheep, we've gone astray. And each one of us, we've turned to our own selfish way. And ever since, you and I, we've been forced to deal with all the struggles and fears and anxiety that come with living in a fallen world. I'm I'm pretty sure that Adam and Eve in that story, they, they must have known immediately that something had changed. That sense of peace had left them. The first thing they'd do is they go, it, 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 covered in shame, they go running away from God and from each other. They knew something had been lost. And, and all through the centuries, human beings have had that idea, something has been lost. There's, there are things that are beautiful, but there are things that are not right in the world. And all through the centuries, God has repeatedly promised that he was going to intervene. He was going to intervene in the form of a a plan, a rescue mission that would be set in motion by a Redeemer. Their word for it was a Messiah. The the word Messiah translated into, into Greek is a Christ. You thought that was Jesus' last name, wasn't it? Jesus Christ. No, it's his title, it's his mission. He was on the vanguard of God's great rescue effort in the world. A great example of what this looked like as they looked forward to it. The prophet Isaiah said, Isaiah 9, the people who've walked in darkness, isn't that us? There are dark spots in our world. The people who've walked in darkness will see a great light. Those who know what it means to dwell in a land of the shadow of death, isn't that us? Upon them a light has shined, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, cue the swell of instruments. We're hearing Handel's Messiah. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called. in that great litany of names, but the name I want to focus on with you this morning is this one, the last one. He shall be called the Prince of Peace. Something good was coming. The Messiah was coming. Peace was coming. But boy, it was hard to wait. And the centuries dragged on, and like children waiting for Christmas morning, God's people began to wonder how much longer, how much longer they would say. Jeremiah said, why is it, God, that that we, we wait so long? It feels like you might have forgotten us, that you might have forsaken us. God, restore us to your very self. Renew us as you did in the days of old. people have speculated like, why is it that, that Jesus came when He came? Why not come a thousand years earlier, or two thousand, or a thousand years later? Is it just a haphazard thing? We have, we have the, the backward glance through history that affords us this tantalizing idea that this is no accident. In fact, the Bible describes that moment when Jesus was born as the fullness of time, in the fullness of time, at just the right time, God sent his son. And in hindsight, we can see how perfect the timing was. Because up until around there, then, the conditions of the world would not have allowed for the rapid spread of the message of Jesus, the good news of God's birth breaking into the world. It wouldn't have been able to spread the way it did, and it spread like wildfire. Why? Well, there was the rise of a common language. With one language, you could travel through much of that known world, and the news could spread. There was the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. After years, years, decades, centuries of war, At last, there was a season where war ceased, and you could move from country to country without fear of being on the wrong side of enemy lines. It also meant that the Romans could get to work building great roads and shipping lanes and safe harbors, all perfect for the movement of people and for the spread of the gospel, the good news, the fullness of time, just the right time, and not a moment too soon. Some of you have been with us through the month of December. Let me just tell you what we've been up to. During December, we've been trying to understand what that moment meant, the the birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus. And we've been doing it by looking at the songs of Christmas, not the ones that are playing on uh, on the radio station for the most part. There are four songs recorded in the birth story of Jesus, in the Gospel, in the Gospel of Luke, And over the four weeks, we've looked at all of them. We looked first at the song sung by Mary, the mother of Jesus, a song that some of you will know as Magnificat, My Soul Magnifies the Lord. We looked at the song of of Zechariah, the Benedictus, the goodness of what God is doing. Last week, we looked at old Simeon's song. Remember Simeon who just... I mean, if ever there was a man who exemplified what waiting faithfully looked like, it was Simeon. He waited his whole life, and then finally, he held Jesus in his arms and said, Nunc dimittis, now you can let me depart in peace, God. My eyes have seen your salvation. And today, we look at the last of the four songs. This is the main event. This is Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, and it climaxes with You already sang it. The title of the sermon today, the angel's song, Gloria in Excelsis Deo, which means glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. Thank you, brother. So what I'd like to do is, uh, is pick up the story with you in Luke's Gospel in chapter 2. If you want to have that open in front of you, as we refer to it, Luke 2, verses 1 to 7. About six months have passed. Now, from from that moment when when Mary first returned home to Nazareth after receiving the news from God that something incredible is happening in you, through you, Mary. And she sings her song in response, the Magnificat. Six months have passed. And now, now we're getting into the final weeks of Mary's pregnancy, and in Nazareth, where they lived, they received news from the local Roman governor, whoever that was, that, that the big guy himself, n- not God, C- Caesar Augustus, the, the, the mid-level guy, <laughs> God's the big... uh, Caesar Augustus sent out this decree. The whole world was going to go through a census. Why do you count your people? Bragging rights and taxes. So this is not good news. For them, This, knows that this is on the, on the precipice of a tax increase. But in order to do the census, is that we want everybody to go to their original hometown. Where were you from originally? Where is your family from? Where is your tribe? Now maybe Rome set it up this way as a as a way of sort of cooling off the temperature because this would have a little bit of a nationalistic flavor, kind of a homecoming. Okay, I get to go home. That's kind of neat. Mary and Joseph both part of the tribe of David, remember King David? They travel 80 miles to get to Bethlehem, to the birthplace of David. And of course, when they arrive, they did, as you and I do when we arrive somewhere, they look for a place to stay. Enter the innkeeper into the story, who is usually depicted as the villain, right? Sorry, I can see you're pregnant, but there's no room for you. No, (laughs) In fact, I mean, the Bible actually never even mentions an innkeeper, uh, but it's not hard to imagine that there was an inn. There was probably somebody in charge of it. But we vilified that in our minds. There's a fascinating thing going on here. Let let me just, I hope you find this fascinating. Uh, The language that gets used there, there's no room for them in the inn. Actually, probably the better way of saying it is there's no appropriate place for them in the inn. There's no suitable place for them in the inn. What's going on? Well, an inn in the first century looks a whole lot different than the Medivale Hilton does. Uh, Really what they are is a series of courtyard stalls. Remember, this is a Mediterranean climate. It's a warm climate. Uh, If anything, you want to be exposed to the cool night air. So these are stalls, no roof. All you got for your money was a fire to cook on, a place to hitch up your animals, a place to lie down, maybe some straw, and a wall at your back that would break the night wind. But there's no privacy. There's no shelter. There's no free continental breakfast in the lobby in the morning. So maybe one possibility is that this innkeeper realized that this, this traveling couple, they journeyed a long distance, camping out in the courtyard, looking for a place to stay. He realizes that she's not just pregnant, she is really pregnant. And this is no place to have a baby. Finding a private place isn't easy. The town is swollen, all the rooms are filled up, census time. One other little detail, and then this starts to come together. Luke tells us that this was the season when there were shepherds working out in the fields around Bethlehem with their flocks. We know exactly what that was like. In fact, you can go there to this day, and you can see the shepherding fields outside of Bethlehem, and you will see in the cliffs around those fields a series of caves, carved into the notches of the cliffs. They're still there. They're still to this day used for this purpose. This is where you sheltered your animals when the nights got a little bit rough. It's likely there that Jesus was born in the only privacy the world afforded, tucked into a cliffside grotto designed principally and primarily for animals and not for people, but at least there was privacy. And there... Mary, absent of any midwife, probably not Joseph, men didn't sit in that role, Mary gave birth to a son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger. I and mean, then this part of the Christmas story still kind of stops us in our tracks because there's something that feels all wrong. God, what are you doing here in an animal stall? in a feeding trough. In fact, this is, this is the, the launching off point for understanding both of the love and the humility of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, for even though he was rich beyond measure, for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might enjoy all the riches of God. I like the way Philip Yancey describes the moment. He's one of my favorite writers. He says, Our God, who with a mere thought could order armies and empires about like pawns on a chessboard, emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder, who depended on a teenage couple for shelter and food and love. Are you still tucked into somebody who looks like they ought to have a Bible? Okay, find that person now. Let's read together through Luke chapter 2, the next few verses from 8 till 12. Luke 2, 8 to 12. Here's where the thing, it gets cosmic in its dimensions. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Uh, you should probably just stop there. Uh, An angel of the Lord appeared to them because that sounds so familiar that you forget how really striking that ought to be. And just to emphasize how striking and how extraordinary this is, it says, as the glory of God shone around them, they were terrified. You better believe they were terrified. That's an angel of the Lord. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. And it will be for you and for all people. For unto you and this day in the city of David, a savior has been born and he is the Messiah, Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. I'll tell you, there's so so many amazing things about that announcement. But I think one of the coolest is the ones who heard it first. Of all the people, this is not, a communication to the royal dignitaries, to the religious elite. It doesn't ripple through the corridors of power. It's to the shepherds, those who have been relegated to the basement of society. Good, clean folk considered blue-collar shepherds undesirable, unclean, unholy. I mean, they were out in the countryside all week long. They worked often seven days a week, many, many hours a day, made it impossible for them to do things that that good, wholesome people thought were important, like keeping the Sabbath with uh, meticulous hand cleaning and ritual washing. They were seen as outcasts, low, low, low on the social ladder. Shepherds were poorly educated they were poorly paid, in fact, because it didn't require tons of skill, the task of shepherding was often given to children. So you remember all of those children's pageants we saw growing up, where we have kids dressed in bath robes and, and we tried to make a shepherd's crook out of a Christmas paper roll. and uh, it turns out they may not be that far off the mark. It was likely young people out there in the fields. For all those reasons, the shepherds were, they were the lost sheep of the day. Remember Jesus talks about them, He said, this is why I came, Luke 4, to seek and save those who are lost and to set free those who are downtrodden, cast aside by society. Let me tell you one other thing about this group of shepherds, though, and I think you'll find this fascinating. These were not... Any old shepherds, this is a particular group of shepherds with a particular job in raising a very important flock. You see, the the temple in Jerusalem, uh, they offered sacrifices every day in the morning and in the evening. A lamb pure and without blemish. As a way of saying, God, we worship you, and God, we're, we're just crying out for you. Everything that is wrong in our lives, wrong in the world, we're asking for mercy and for help. In order to sustain that system every day, morning and night, the temple and their authorities, they had their own private flocks of sheep. Guess where they kept them? We know this historically, lots of records of this. Their flocks were pastured in Bethlehem. It is quite possible, more than likely actually, that these particular shepherds were keeping watch Over the temple flocks. So think about this. Those young shepherds, despised, cast aside by society, were the first to see the one who John described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then things go crazy. Verse 13. The angel finishes the proclamation, and suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. And this praise just didn't come from that little group that maybe were hovered above where the shepherds were. No, actually what it says is this is a multitude forming only part of the heavenly host, as if to say that the whole host of heaven was praising God on that night of nights, not just the little portion visible to the shepherds. And just to be clear, a host is not a choir. Doesn't mean that they couldn't sing. A host is an army. The vast armies of heaven lit up the night sky to witness God's great inbreaking into history. The invasion had begun. Jesus is establishing a beachhead in the world, the first step in this divine rescue mission. And don't miss the contrast. Things may look terribly humble and meek and lowly down in their stable, but there is power behind this movement of God. By the way, it was customary in in that day, maybe still is in some cultures today, when a child is born, uh, the the neighborhood shows up and they sing over the child. They, they, They sing lullabies and songs of blessing. They greet the baby with simple music. Well, here's Jesus, far from home, born into a borrowed stable. Not possible. So God provides the choir. And in verse 14, we finally get to the lyrics of their song. Uh, I'd say read it with me, but you probably know it by heart. Glory to God in the highest, say that. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. Okay, that's the setting. That's the songs. What are they singing about? One thing. What are they singing about? Peace. Peace. Peace on earth. Uh, here's, here's the question I, I, I was afraid to ask, but I trust you. You've got this one. Do you think the angels misread the words in their hymn book when they got to that line? Hear me out on this, because where is the evidence from that moment that there has been peace on earth? In fact, I went and searched some history books Over the past 2,500 years, there have been 900 wars, 1,600 revolutions. That's an average of one per year for 100 generations. During that same time period, there have been 8,000 peace treaties signed and subsequently broken. Each was intended to last for a lifetime. On average, they lasted less than two years. Everywhere you go in the world, there is an assortment of peace monuments. We build one after every war. Charles Swindoll, great preacher, said, it seems to us sometimes when we look at the world that peace is nothing more than that glorious moment in history when everyone stands around reloading before the next war, and the statistics bear it out. 47 million lives lost World War I, 53 million World War II, and still today there's no peace. We watch the news each night, wondering how many died today. Conflicts in Israel and Gaza, Ukraine, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, South Sudan. We worry about terrorist attacks. We worry about unstable nations who now have nuclear arsenals. We keep an eye on deteriorating relationships between Taiwan and China. And we see the news story after story. Where is the peace? Maybe like the prophet Jeremiah, as he cried out, Jeremiah 6.14, peace, peace, there is no peace. So what about it, church? Did the angels get it wrong? Did they misread their hymn book? Has peace come? And what does it mean? Let's just, let's entertain for a couple of minutes, the possibility that, that they got it right. That God's word, in fact, is God's word, and that it is, in fact, good news, and that there was a war that ended, and that the lyrics that the angels sang were true. You see, I, I think their song heralded the end of a war that's lasted longer than any other conflict in history and has claimed more lives than all conflicts combined. When Jesus comes into the world, when he goes to the cross, he ends a war that began when sin first entered the world. And that war has casualties that cost billions and billions of lives. In fact, that war is the reason we die in the first place. And to the church in Rome, Paul reminds us there are grim statistics in that war. He says, All of us have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. The consequences of that disobedience, the result of that, the wages of that is death. So understand, everyone loses this war. Everyone is a casualty. And the angel song said, that war has now come to an end. There can be peace on earth. Just as there was in the first days when Adam and Eve enjoyed unbroken harmony with God how does it work? How does it work? Uh, uh, This peace that we've longed about, longed for so long, how can there be really peace on earth, goodwill? Two things, and then we'll close. Are are you all still awake? This is good news. This is sweet news. In fact, here, here's some candy canes. This is sweet news. If you need a pick-me-up, just pass those around. Okay, got that? This is the sweetest of news. How is it possible? First, peace with God happens because Jesus comes as our peace. Isaiah 53, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. Romans 5.10, for if while we were still sinners, God's enemies, we were reconciled to him, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? He's the source of. Of this peace, And the truth is, where peace dwells in the hearts of human beings, there will be peace between human beings. And when we try and find one without the other, it's always been fruitless. Ephesians 2, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing walls of hostility, and through him we have access to God. See, when we're, when we're at peace with God... I don't think we can be at war with each other. If we truly know him and serve him as Lord, we will treat each other with the same love and humility that God treats us. And when we have that kind of access to God through Jesus, the great peace offering, and we have that gift, the promise, that that life here is just a preamble to a life that goes on abundantly forever. Forever. Isn't the inevitable result of that a sense of peace? It can never be taken. It can never be robbed from us. An assurance that everything else may be out of our control, but this one thing that's most important is firmly in our grasp because of Jesus. And nothing can take it. Not disease, illness, financial troubles, nothing. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, Scripture says. Real peace comes not in the form of the absence of trouble. It's, It's the presence of God. Could it be then that the angels read it right? That peace comes, that Jesus is our peace offering. Maybe there's just one more thing that needs to happen for peace to become peace on earth. And that's that the people who know it, love it, and cherish it must be willing to share it. You know, it's the first thing that happens after the shepherds are witness to the the great events of that night. Verse 17, when they had seen him, they spread the word, the word concerning everything that had been told to them about this child and all that heard it were amazed. I bet they were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. They were the first to hear the song, the first to hear the news, the first to claim it and honor it. They were the first evangelists of the Christian era. And scripture reminds us that that we are steeped in their example. So Paul can say things like this. God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he's given us that same opportunity to be involved in reconciliation. We are, get this language, it's beautiful. We are Christ's ambassadors. And God is making his appeal to the world through us. You see, if really there is to be peace on earth, goodwill, then people need to hear the news. Somebody has to tell them that the war is over, that peace is possible. As I was leafing through one of my history books this week, I came across this story. I think it's true, actually. Uh, It's an episode that happened during World War II in the Pacific Theater. There's this unit of Japanese soldiers stationed on a remote island in the Pacific. I'm not sure exactly what their duty was. Maybe they were keeping lookout or watching over enemy shipping lanes. But from time to time, uh, these soldiers would climb into the water, swim to a nearby island, and raid them for food and supplies. Then they would come back. And they did this for two years. In fact, they continued doing this for two years after the war had ended. Still swimming over to the other island, pilfering them for supplies, until one time, they took a trip over there, and they found a magazine left by a tourist on the beach and read and discovered only then that the war was over and had been over for two years. They go home, they tell everyone, and eventually they find their way back to their own homes. In some ways, the same thing is happening in our world today. Read the news. There is no peace in people's lives. There's no peace in the world. No one has told them that the war is over. As it says in another one of the songs of Christmas that we love to sing, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, go tell it on the mountain, Jesus Christ is born. Some of you will remember the, the old hymn. Of, it speaks so deeply about peace. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows rose, you know it, you can say it with me if you know it, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well. It is well with my soul and it goes on though Satan should buffet though trials should come let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for me and my sin my sin oh the bliss of this glorious thought that my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Will you sing it with me? It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Those words move you? Is it well with your soul? It's the gift of Christmas to have restored everything that Adam and Eve felt was lost. Nothing brings peace like that. Nothing calms our relationships and warms our heart like the presence of Jesus. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. And in us, peace. I invite you to bow your heads for a moment and we pray together. Our God, these words, this news, it can fall in a fresh way on ears that have heard it year after year. And and God, it can penetrate in ways that it has never penetrated before. And God, if there is someone here who may have heard the story again and again, but today for the first time it has a claim on their life and they want to respond saying, God, I, I believe it, I own it, I trust in it, I want it, I want you, my Lord, my savior, my master, my guide, my friend. Then this is a moment for you. And maybe for some here it's the first time that they're hearing the story, and all of its beauty with all of its all of its ramifications, and and they too want to respond. God I want this, I need this, and in this moment, I claim it. I I speak the name of Jesus, not just as a figure in history, but as as the center and foundation of my life. God, I place him in that one central position. I acknowledge him as my Lord and my Savior. And, And the Bible tells us that just as the angels lit up that night sky long ago, that that when even one of God's people respond in that way, there is great rejoicing that ripples through all the heavens. And, and we know, Lord, that there is rejoicing in this moment. I, I pray your blessing on all of your gathered people here and online. God, we celebrate you. We enjoy and we acknowledge all the gifts that have come this Christmas. In Jesus, through Jesus, by Jesus, because of Jesus. So in his name we pray, amen. Amen.